0: Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence, a real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark, and Dr. Karen Hutchison.
1: Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. I, I am very excited today because of a few reasons. First of all, in a couple more weeks, we're going to have Karen back on the show. She's been taken off for a good chunk of the summer for various reasons, and I am very excited to get her back in the studio to share her wisdom and to just have some good conversations about the different uh, people we've been able to have on this show. But until then, we have a couple episodes for you. Over the next two weeks, we are going to be sharing with you some conversations I was able to have with Brian Fisher and Kira Schlesinger on a topic that we don't talk a lot about, but I, I really, really think it's important for us to be talking about this topic, and that's the topic of abortion. There are so many different people that have so many strong views on this, a lot of emotion with this, a lot of life experience with this, and that Brian and Kira, I think, handle it with grace, handle it with um, just their experience and their different positions, and they do have different positions, and that's part of the reason why I'm very excited for you to hear it. Whatever your position, I, you won't agree with all the, these people have to say, and that's part of the reason why we do this on this show is we want to encourage people encourage all of us, including myself, to think differently about, um, and not just to think differently necessarily, but just to understand other people. And you may come to think differently, but to understand other people with differing opinions, to have empathy, to be able to listen better, to be able to actually understand what they're saying. And even if you don't agree with it, you can walk away and still be friends. So we're going to do something we don't normally do. And that's in this episode, we're actually going to have both Brian's and Kira's interviews that I was able to do with them on this same episode. We wanted to do that because, you know what, I, I was afraid, quite frankly, some people wouldn't wouldn't even listen to the other side that they don't necessarily agree with. So I wanted to put both in the same episode so that it would be really a whole lot easier for you to be able to hear both sides. And I really encourage you to do that. And then next week, I'm actually going to be sharing with you a conversation I was able to have with both Brian and Kira at the same conversation where they're able to share with each other and it was it was what i hoped it would be and it's a civil dialogue between two people that may have differing opinions but they also can show each other grace and can actually listen to each other and really share with where they agree as well so today we're going to start with the conversation i was able to have with brian fisher he is the co-founder and president of human coalition and you know i'm just going to help you get right to it i'm not going to have any commentary on these interviews, because for a couple reasons, first of all, they're longer, um, a little bit longer, and since we have both of them on this episode, I didn't want it to be too long, but it's already going to be much longer than we normally have on our episodes, hoping you can listen to it either in one sitting or um, over, over a couple different listens. But uh, I'm going to start with Brian, and then we're going to hear Kira after that. Well, Brian, it is so great to have you here with us today.
0: Thanks so much for having me on, Phil. It's great to be with you.
1: Yeah, so, you know, Brian, I've been able to get to know a little bit uh, over the past uh, few weeks researching for this interview about Human Coalition, about you, and I've been so, so encouraged. And I just love for you to just briefly share your story with our audience, particularly how you got to be working uh, to help women uh, and men really navigate uh, crisis pregnancies.
0: Well, I'm actually a very reluctant participant. I I was never looking to be in the pro-life movement, was never particularly interested in helping women and children. My background is in the business world. I graduated with a music degree, but I found my way into the financial services world, and most of my early career was in that industry, and it was a great time. I loved the pace and the energy of the the for-profit world. And then 10 years ago, God began to really work on my heart and gave me a passion for pre-born children and their mothers. And we tested an idea in 2007 about how to reach women online who were abortion-seeking. And then uh, that developed into the organization, Human Coalition, in 2009. And quite frankly, I still wasn't looking to do it full-time. I still was sort of grudgingly participating in the work. But on June 22nd, 2010, I got a phone call from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And through our method, the very first human coalition baby was rescued from abortion. And I broke down and I wept and I was so overtaken because here God had condescended not only to save me when I was six years old, but he condescended to use me in the act Mm. of rescuing a human being from death. And, you know, all I'd done up to that was complain. So (laughs) after that, um, it was a whole different deal. That was my heart change. I was broken in that moment and uh, I've been fighting the good fight ever since.
1: Yeah. no, I know there's so much more to that story, but, uh, you know, and there's other, uh, interviews I've heard you give that we can link to in the, in the show notes on that. Um, so much to cover today. I'd love to love to just have everyone be able to hear so much more to that, but it's, I think a common story that a lot of people listening into this have with whatever they're doing, um, all around the world, just God captures us in, in ways, but, but this, this particular issue, I think so often gets, uh, kind of, pigeonholed as a woman's issue as a political it's so politicized um, but can you just quickly we're gonna we're gonna talk later about the the real the depth of the man's role in this but uh, can you just quickly kind of defu- you know debunk the uh, the idea that abortion is just a women's issue and why it's so important for uh, men like us to engage
0: well, you've just cited two of the great myths in our culture, which is abortion is a political issue and abortion is a women's issue. Abortion is primarily a spiritual issue, and it is both a men's and women's issue. And I know the reason is fairly simple. One is that it takes a man and a woman to create a child. And so there is a role that a man has to play in, uh, in that relationship. But if you look at the history of abortion in America – Um, Through the the lens of reality, you see men, primarily white, rich men, driving the abortion agenda and then, frankly, using women to be the front marketing for their idea in the late 60s and 70s. And, of course, Roe v. Wade was legalized by an all-male Supreme Court. And still today, much of the funding and the -the behind-the-scenes activity to drive the abortion agenda is from powerful primarily white men. And so there are social uh, issues and and empires behind this that are driven by racism and sexual promiscuity. At, At a practical level, I can simply tell you that having now worked with thousands of women who are contemplating abortion, when the man, the father of the baby, steps idly by passively and she says, well, what do you want me to do about this? And he says, oh, I don't know. It's up to you. That is a death knell for the child. And so the man has, I think, the biblical and social responsibility to stand in the gap for those innocent and less fortunate, which is the mother of the child and the child herself and to and to be that provider and protector that we're supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And we will definitely dive more into that. I just wanted to, you know, for those of you out there listening in, I wanted to make sure that for you men out there, this is this is as much, if not more, sometimes for you to be hearing, um, and women, you know, make sure the men in your life are able to hear this as well. Um, cause I think it is, it's so critical. I just finished the book that we're going to be talking about, uh, later in the show. And it, it's definitely one that I think everyone, everyone out there should be reading. So, you know, before we get back to that, and I, I definitely, I wanted to, I wanted to touch on it, before we, we converse about it a little bit longer later but I want to hear I want everyone else uh, out there to be able to hear what human coalition is doing I mean what what you're doing and it's it's so it's so cool because it really uses you know technology which can be so negative in so many ways and often is one of the reasons you know why abortion is so prevalent and it uses that to help stop it can you can you just share with us what your uh, your six prong approaches and really what human coalition is doing, uh, to help save these babies.
0: Sure. Well, I'm a business guy. As I said, that's my background in the securities world, marketing media. And so when God first called me into the pro-life effort, I began to look at the abortion Holocaust in our country through the lens of uh, business and, and really what was going on. The abortion industry is a multi billion dollar industry it makes its money from killing children and uh, i began to wonder well could we in fact intercept enough of these women and bring them into a system which encourages life to where you could both erode the supply and the demand for abortion in the country although we talk a lot about fighting abortion politically laws follow culture so the united states government will not outlaw abortion until the culture finds abortion reprehensible. That requires us to be deeply engaged in the hearts and minds of vulnerable women all across the country. And so in 2007, we tested the idea of reaching women online. There's 1.85 million internet searches a month in the United States for abortion procurement terms like abortion clinic, ru forty-six? And so that's our first piece of our puzzle. How do we effectively reach somebody who is contemplating abortion online? And then through a long story, we started a call center, email, text, chats, calls from women who are at risk to abort. We use the internet to find them. They call us. The job of our call center is to set up appointments with them in life-affirming clinics. We support 35 pregnancy centers across the country, and we own and operate our own network of what we call women's care clinics that are very specific to this type of client. And so we want her to have a face-to-face engaging experience with a compassionate, loving, grace-filled staff. And their job is to help the woman sort through the chaos in her life. And then the fourth part is what we call the continuum of care. How do we address the long-term needs of the woman? Phil, a woman who is at risk to abort has lots of things going on. She might be abused. She might be broke. She might be without a job. She may not have health care. There are always stresses and pressures on a woman that drive her to the abortion decision. If you assist her with those things, she oftentimes will choose life. She needs a loving group, a community around her, and the continuum of care provides that long-term care so we can work towards true life transformation. That's stage four. And stage five is the church. What role does the church have in ending abortion? It has, I think, a primary role, and so our team works with that group. And then our sixth piece, and it's basically like a laboratory, is where we're testing some new ideas that might be able to be brought to bear on ending abortion. So if you looked at our six stages, we put them in a wheel. We call them the coalition wheel. It's, it's a very simple um, cycle. We go find them online, have them call our call center, invite them to come in and see us in our clinics bring them into a continuum of care so we can have a relationship with them long term and eventually connect them with a local church so that we not only save the child but also create an environment that gives us the best shot for the family to be redeemed and restored.
1: And where where can they uh, find that, a little bit more information about all those things and find that, the wheel and and, uh, more information about Human Coalition?
0: Yeah, if you go to humancoalition.org, that's our primary site. And under the About section, we have uh, descriptors of those six things. We call them our labs because we do have a business background. We are always testing new ideas and trying to figure out how to serve the abortion-seeking woman better. And that coalition wheel, that six-stage process is, is where we do that.
1: And the other thing that's implicit in here, I think in the continuum of care part especially, is is really the the need to help these women in all areas of their life, is, which part of that presumably is the role of the man that plays in the life of the child. And, and how do you work that in to the conversation? And, and I imagine it's different in every situation, but what is what does that look like? And, you know, really why is it so important to... As you've heard the term whole life or, you know, the whole life approach are really taking every aspect of this woman's life, not just this one area and helping her to work through all of that.
0: You know, we have a fatherhood crisis in our country, which I'm sure you're aware of and have talked about at length. So uh, we deal with women who are the victims of abuse. In that case, um, we're not intending on engaging the father. Primarily, we're trying to find safety and security for the woman. In the case where the father is not in that sort of a situation, uh, we want him to be a part of the process. And so we certainly invite him uh, to come in and we have male counselors who will work with him. Uh, We offer parenting classes and budgeting classes. Uh, Oftentimes, because many of these men have not grown up with their own fathers, they, they candidly don't have Uh, a good view of what fatherhood is. They don't understand the vital importance of a strong, compassionate, graceful father in the home. And so they don't understand that they're to be a provider and a protector. They don't understand that they can lead their household well as a servant leader. They don't understand that they're going to be a tremendous influence for the good on their child and they're going to be a tremendous support to the mother of the baby. And so when they don't have that modeled for them, you know, we need to be able to help them through that process. I can't stress how important the role of a father figure is in the life of a child, but also how important it is that men, <clears throat> excuse me, in general, take up that mantle and begin to, frankly, restore themselves, ourselves as men to a position of godly spirit leadership, not only in our homes, but in our culture.
1: Yeah, right. And, and I think with that, I, I, I want to dive into the book a little bit. I'll come back to a couple of the other things um, a little bit later. But the book that you wrote really on this issue about the man's role in abortion, um, it's called Abortion, the Ultimate Exploitation of Women. A very strong title. There's another couple strong quotes that you have in the book talking about men started it, men oppress with it, men can end it. And, uh, and then towards the end of, end of the book, you, you say this, and I just want you to speak to really the title <laughs> that the men can, men started, men oppress with it and men can edit. And this quote where you said, we won't end abortion in America until men individually choose to live their lives in a manner that rejects selfishness. Abortion exists because of male selfishness and it will continue to exist as long as men continue to seek their own power, control. And pleasure. I know you wrote a uh, book that has a couple hundred pages in it on this, which, again, I recommend people read. But can you just flesh these out, these strong statements out a bit for our audience and really kind of give us a taste of why you said these things and why they are so true?
0: The title of the book is actually uh, not mine. The, The phrase, the ultimate exploitation of women was originally penned by one of the early feminists, Alice Paul. What our culture that is sort of uh, continually inundated with modern feminism doesn't realize is that the early feminists the ones that led the charge for true gender equality and women's suffrage were anti abortion in the most um descriptive terms and so alice paul recognized as one of the early feminists that abortion was terribly unfortunately exploitive exploited of, of women the um other pieces of the title of the book are, are intending to start a debate and a conversation. So how is it that men started it? Well, if you trace the history of abortion in America, you have 90 some percent, maybe even 98% of people that were driving the abortion agenda were male. Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, is often sort of credited with driving the abortion agenda. And she certainly had a hand in it, although she, by her own admission, was heavily influenced by primarily racist men who were deeply involved in eugenics. Eugenics is the quote-unquote science of weeding out inferior races or people groups in order to generate a better human stock. And so that generation viewed primarily the uh, African-American population as being less valuable, less intelligent, less useful to society. And so Planned Parenthood's origins are actually in attempting to minimize the birth rate of what they deem to be lesser populations. And so men started that effort. And as I describe in the book, the leading figures of the abortion legalization movement in the late 60s and early 70s were primarily men. Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who was a New York uh, OBGYN, and Lawrence Later. Those two drove much of the agenda with some other gentlemen until it was made law in a horribly... Um, constructed Supreme Court argument in 1973, which, of course, was approved by men. We oppress with it, Phil, because abortion really is a tool to do two things, the one of which I've just described, which is to weed out what racist people think are inferior races. The second is, quite frankly, so men can sleep with whoever we want. When unplanned pregnancy was still a threat to a man in the sense that they would have to care for the child, they would have to have some sort of financial or relational obligation for sleeping around and getting a woman pregnant, that was still something that deterred men from unfettered sexual access to whoever they wanted to sleep with. When Roe v. Wade occurred, basically what it did is said the mother is a parent from conception onwards – But the father is a parent from birth onwards. And so for a man who wanted sexual freedom to sleep with whoever he wanted to, this was a get out of jail free card. And today that's still how it's used. That's why a man can honestly say when he gets a woman pregnant and he doesn't want any obligation for her or the baby, hey, honey, you can do whatever you want. I'll support you whether he does or not, because legally he actually can't have any influence on that process. And unfortunately, we have cases where women want to abort and the boyfriends or husbands don't. And there's nothing the boyfriends or husbands can do about it. Men can end it is my claim for the last part of the book that we have an obligation, I think, especially as Christian men to engage in this issue. It starts in the way that we behave ourselves. It starts when men reject pornography, which has a direct and um, deadly link to abortion. It starts – when we choose to keep a sexual relationship inside the confines of marriage. I realize it's hardly traditional to say that, but it is not only biblically accurate, it is by far the best social construct for a healthy society. The healthiest sexual ethic is sex in marriage and only in marriage. Those two things alone would stop most abortions because 85% of abortions occur because of unplanned pregnancies. So that's driven by a sexual ethic Outside of traditional marriage, mm-hmm. further men can fight this and partner with women to end abortion through their gifts and their talents and their stories. And I argue in the book that there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 million men who are the father of an aborted child. They have a powerful story. If those men rose up in mass and say it was a mistake, we never should have. Uh, we never should have done it. We should have stood by the mother of our children. I think we'd have a massive revolution in the country. Including in the media, by the way, because that statement, that story alone, upends most of the arguments that the abortion industry makes.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, the book that that summarizes the book very well, which I imagine you've done before. Um, and I, I can't. Uh, I think that the the book itself is worth it just for your painstaking history of the abortion. Uh, argument, the abort, how abortion came to be legalized. And really the, something that I talk about, you know, you're, you were speaking uh, my language when you talked about the inconsistencies of it from a logical and legal um, uh, standpoint. I mean, the fact that abortion exists is paradoxical with, it is in direct conflict with other laws on the books of manslaughter and other things like that, where, as you've said, and as I've argued with several people, um, the idea that anybody else in the world, if they accidentally or intentionally kill that baby, they will be prosecuted for that, whereas the mother can have an abortion and not be. Can you speak to that a little bit um, and and kind of help the audience understand A little bit more clearly what I just put out there.
0: Several years ago, there was a horrible incident in uh, California where the body of a mother and her yet-to-be-born child washed up in two separate places. Uh, I think it was in the San Francisco Bay, Lacey and Connor. Uh, Lacey's husband, Scott Peterson, was eventually charged with double homicide. He was charged because he killed his wife and as a result of killing his wife, his unborn son, Connor also perished, and Scott Peterson rots in prison today. <clears throat> uh, the president at the time, Bush, passed a law called Lacey and Connors Law, and that law is on the federal books. It protects pre-born children from, I think, over 60 acts of violence. So if there is any violence committed against a pregnant woman, she's hurt, she's in an accident, she's struck, the, her, her stomach is struck, the, the oppressor can be thrown into prison or causing harm to the preborn child. That law has a specific exemption for abortion. And so, what it in essence says is that we have Roe v. Wade and Lacey and Connors law on the books. And if you put those two things together, it basically claims that the mother's choice, or in many cases, somebody else's choice who's coercing the mother, outweighs any other sort of violent act or law on the books. Meaning the child's value is determined by the state in every case except abortion. And it is one of the most twisted, violent, ridiculous sets of laws on the books. I, I applaud President Bush for protecting the preborn child. My personal opinion is we haven't had any president since Reagan who's actually stepped up and attempted to protect the preborn the way that they need to be protected. Point being – to me, it's a terrible irony that even John Kerry in his comments about it said this doesn't make any sense. On one hand, we're saying we can kill the pre child and on another we're saying we should protect them. That's inconsistent. And he was exactly right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've had even I remember Biden during his vice presidential debate said, I believe life starts at conception, but I still believe a woman should have choice. That doesn't make sense when you think about it um, from a logical and legal perspective. So, you know, I I think I don't want I don't want this to become where because this is obviously a very, you know, sensitive subject for a lot of people. Um, But when you really bring it down to that, this is a child, this is a life. um, It should be more clear. Um, But why do you think it is that this has become so um, why do you think it has become so politicized and has become a taboo topic that even us talking about it here? Um, some people probably won't listen to, probably won't listen to this episode. Some people will be very upset about this. Um, but how are you able to really talk with people about this on a, on a level uh, where you can actually talk, where you can actually have a dialogue and you can actually be rational, um, in the conversation?
0: Well, first it's important to understand that abortion, um, does not trump the cross of Christ. So if there are folks in your listening audience who had abortions and feel the guilt and shame that inevitably comes with a decision, we need to remember that the cross of Christ is bigger than the sin of abortion. So when I speak in churches all over the country, that's always the first thing that I say, Mm -hmm. because one in three, one in four people sitting in church have a born a child. And so there's an enormous opportunity for the church to be the hands and feet of Christ and to be a healing agent in their congregations. Second is that we have to redefine how we talk about this. The answer to your question, why is it that we see it as politicized, why is it that we, we buy the lie that it's reproductive choice, that it's about women's rights, is because, frankly, of brilliant, masterful marketing by the abortion industry and tremendous wealth in the abortion industry. They have fantastic marketers combined with virtually unlimited budgets. You can change a culture with those two things. And over the last 40 years, they've done a brilliant job of doing it. So, you know, take your um, your question about why do we devalue preborn life in the womb? Well, the answer is because the money and the media and, frankly, the government for years have said that that's what we're going to do. If you step back just two paces and say, well, now let's let's think about this. We understand and believe because it's fact that life begins at conception. There is no medical textbook of any repute anywhere that would disclaim that human life begins at conception. Okay, why then do we discriminate against that life in the womb for reasons that are entirely subjective? I mean, if you and I, Phil, said, I'm going to discriminate against that person because they're black, we would be called a racist. Mm -hmm. If we said we're going to discriminate against that woman because she's female, we would be uh, guilty of gender exploitation. If we say about a preborn human, we're going to devalue you to the point of killing you in the womb because you're small. Because you're not as developed as I am, because of your location in the womb, we would be guilty of the exact same discriminatory practices as doing the same to somebody who's African American or to a woman. Yet in our culture, which at the moment is so obsessed with equality, we're only equal if we're born. Mm-hmm. It's ironic that one mother who desperately wants a child and the birth of her child is the most expensive is extraordinary thing in her life. That child is infinitely valuable. The same child in the womb of a mother who is being abused by a husband and being threatened to abort is worth nothing. Mm-hmm. There are some grave inconsistency, as I've, as I've argued before. There actually is no rational, moral, ethical argument for abortion. None. The entire industry is fabricated on lies. So we need to address it apologetically, compassionately, winsomely, mm-hmm. but we need to address it. Absolutely.
1: And the book does a great job of of sharing how to do that. There's also a website that the book talks about to get more information on it with some stories, some videos, some some other writings. Can you share that with our audience uh, where they can go to do that? And we'll also have it in the show notes.
0: Sure. Well, they can go to abortion exploits women if they want more information on the book, abortion dot com. There's a, a wonderful site that we started years ago called abortion memorial. Um, they can search for that abortion dot com where folks that have had abortions that want to memorialize and honor their pre-born children can post their stories. And I think they're some of the most beautiful moving stories I've ever read. Mm. And these are unsolicited testimonies of people that um, are grieving. And uh, there are physical locations around the country where pre-born children are memorialized. This is an online version of that same thing. Very, very powerful. And both men and women post there. We have post abortive women on staff at Healing Coalition. And they suffer uh, very differently, but they suffered nonetheless, and they have been redeemed and forgiven by Jesus Christ. But as every one of them will tell you, Phil, they still feel the pain. Right. And they're still feeling the sorrow for a child that God gave them that um, they chose to destroy. Absolutely.
1: So how can our audience uh, practically get involved with the work that you're doing, um, the work other pro-life organizations are doing? I know you've mentioned a few earlier in the, in the show, but can you just give us a, a few ways that people can actually get involved?
0: Yeah, I'll tell you the best way that folks can get involved with us is to go to our site at humancoalition.org. Um, we're a nonprofit, so um, we're always asking for money. It's just incumbent in our nature. But if they want to volunteer with us, they can do that. There's a ton of resources. There's a fantastic blog. There's the books. We have hundreds of Facebook and social media memes. We have about 1.1 million people that follow us on Facebook from all over the world. It's a great, great community. Uh, If they want to get involved locally, they should certainly find their local pregnancy center. But I would argue one of the most powerful ways that folks can get involved is through their church. I firmly believe that abortion can and will be ended in America in our lifetime. It will happen not only through the work of groups like Human Coalition and other fabulous pro-life groups, but by the deep engagement of the local church. And the first step to doing that is education. And so if just 10 people listening to your podcast were to go to their church and ask to do a Sunday school class on abortion and on the biblical ethic of life, that itself would start some amazing things. We need more and more churches to understand that abortion breaks the heart of God and that he commands us numerous times in scripture to be deeply actively involved in ending it so i can tell you personally at human coalition we really 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 need churches to be involved and that starts when the church itself makes the decision to educate their congregations and that can easily start by a layperson person that just says hey you know what you're right this is the greatest holocaust in american history 60 million dead children since 1973 the leading cause of death in america is us killing our own children and it's time that the church steps in and does something about it. And I think that would be a powerful, powerful way to folks to get engaged.
1: Absolutely. And, and I know that you've created uh, you with being Human Coalition, have created the church toolkit as well to help churches through that process. And can you just, uh, again, that's, that's at your website, right?
0: Yep, humancoalition.org. Uh, we have a couple of pastors on staff, and their job is to run around the country and, again, winsomely, compassionately work with churches who are always in different spots on this and bring them into deeper engagement to protecting pre-born children and their moms. And so we have, honestly, a litany of online resources. But the Church, church Toolkit has sermon notes and other sermon, video sermons from great pastors around the country, access to books and the articles and other resources, apologetics. Uh, there's a virtual library there of helpful resources so that a pastor can easily get on there and build a sermon or somebody can start their own Sunday school class and uh, talk about this in a way that serves their congregation. My personal opinion is it's always best to start with grace. Mm -hmm. Um, Because abortion is perceived as a political issue, let's not have that conversation first. Let's talk about God as the author of life and Jesus Christ as our salvation and talk through his grace and forgiveness, and then talk about how abortion impacts our Lord and how we should be involved. I think that's a, a great way for a church to be involved.
1: Yeah, and I, I imagine that, you know, I want to give you a, a minute here to, to talk with anyone um, listening in who, you know, whether male or female, who might be considering aborting their pregnancy. And can you just, what would what do you want to share with them right now?
0: In every city I've ever been in, and I've traveled a lot of places in the country, there are tens and hundreds of people who want to help you. Your situation might seem hopeless. It might seem like you have no options. You might legitimately not even want your child, and we've seen that as well. Just understand that God has blessed you with a beautiful work of divine art, and that beautiful human being will grow into a wonderful male, female, little boy, little girl that will bring joy to everybody around them, and that is a blessing. A baby is always a blessing. And so let us or let local churches or local communities surround you Envelop you with love and grace and compassion and tangible help because I promise you, regardless of what others might say, what family members might say, what a boyfriend or husband might say, there are life-loving people who will really go to extraordinary lengths to walk with you, be in a relationship with you, and serve you and your child. And so let's give that baby every shot at having a wonderful life with you.
1: Amen to that. And um, that, that kind of brings us to our last couple questions that we do ask all of our uh, all of our guests. I'm excited to hear your answers. Uh, what what uh, have you read, watched, or listened to that has impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children in their communities with excellence?
0: Oh, well, it's obviously a favorite uh, topic of mine. I read a great book a few years ago that you're probably familiar with called When Helping Hurts. And um, that book really changed my perspective. It is about world hunger. It's about dealing with um, orphans and just poverty in countries across the world. And it talks about how sometimes we attempt to help and we're actually hurting, but how instead do we empower folks. And in that book, um, they outline how the curse, the fall, cursed all four major relationships in our life, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship with creation. And how the gospel brings redemption to all four of those relationships, and it had a profound impact on my thinking, not only about child hunger, which is very important to me as well, but also uh, pro life and how do we how do we bring justice for preborn children and their moms?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and one of the things my one of my friends told me recently, or not told me, but we were talking about this this topic, and and he said, you know, you don't talk about the most vulnerable children in the world very often. And, uh, obviously talking about the children in the mother's womb and, and he's right, you know, and, uh, we need to more. And, uh, I think that that book is, is, I agree. It's, it's a, it's a phenomenal book. Many other people have also recommended that too. I've fortunately been able to interview Brian recently and well, we haven't aired that yet, but we will. And so, uh, yeah, I, I too have been very, very, uh, impacted by that book. So... Last question for you. What, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children and their communities with excellence?
0: Gosh, this is going to sound like a terribly strange answer. Um, there's a book called Good to Great written by Jim Collins. It is a business book. It is for for-profit businesses. But in the 10 chapters of that book, uh, he outlines how to create and maintain and grow a successful organization regardless of its mission. And I have applied those principles in more ways than I can enumerate over the last 10 or 15 years um, related, obviously, to my work. We we look at single moms as widows and we look at preborn children as orphans. There are women who are rejected and there are children who are unwanted. Mm -hmm. And so in, in our world, how we build an organization that is healthy, compassionate, tangibly helping pregnant women and their families um, is has been deeply impacted by that book. I, I and there's a there's a mimeograph, there's a monograph called uh, "Good to Great for Nonprofit." It's mm-hmm. only about thirty pages long, well worth reading about how we as nonprofits can create a deeper mission based on his principles. But that book um, has transformed my thinking about business and, and how organizations should work. And of course, in our world, that just means that we rescued more children. We rescued over. 6,800 children from the very worst abortion-determined situations, and uh, that book has been fundamental in informing how Human Coalition operates to that mission.
1: Yeah, it's definitely fundamental in the work we're doing with uh, with Providence as well, and and say uh, Jim Collins and the work they've been doing uh, is is incredible in um, that book. The Good Year we have with social sectors, or in social sectors, that book is fantastic. For those of you out there running nonprofits, if you haven't read it, go pick it up. Um, and read it. But uh, Brian, thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for what you've written. Uh, It's encouraged me so much. And I uh, can't wait to see um, how God continues to work in and through you and Human Coalition uh, for many, many years to come.
0: Well, thank you for your ministry, Phil. And I, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for helping us spread the word.
1: Thank you, Brian, for sharing your thoughts and just really what you've learned over the years working with Human Coalition and doing this work on this very important topic of abortion. And now we're going to turn to Kira Schlesinger, and Kira is an Episcopalian priest in Tennessee, and she wrote a book called "Pro Choice and Christian." We're going to talk about that on uh, this interview, and you're going to you're going to hear from her on that. And I, I just want to uh, say now, something I forgot to say before, which is I really would love to hear any thoughts you guys have, any feedback you have on this conversation, um, things that questions you might have that I didn't ask, questions that you may have for our guests. Also, I'd love for you to be able to take time to review and rate this podcast on iTunes. It helps us and it helps get the word out. And share this podcast. If it helps you understand these issues better, I guarantee it'll help other people too. So share this on your social media, email, however you want to get this out to different people. I recommend and I I hope that you'll do that. So without more from me, here's Kira Schlesinger. Well, Kira, it is great to have you on the Think Orphan podcast today. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, definitely. And You know, this is not uh, a topic that uh, you often hear uh, discussed on – on podcasts, on radio shows, on different things out there, um, and so I just, I just thank you for coming on. Particularly, you know, as we talked about in the past, you know, we know we don't see eye to eye on a lot of these issues, as a lot of people don't. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm really excited for our conversation because I want to just hear, hear your heart, hear your story, hear, um, you know, how you got to be talking about the issues that we're going to be talking about today, uh, really on a on a more regular basis than most people are. And so, thanks for that and. Uh, you know, I also, you know, a lot of the folks out there um, don't know a lot about you, and so I would really uh, just like to hear a little bit about who you are, how you got to be where you are today, and, uh, you know, kind of introduce yourself to uh, to our audience.
2: Sure. Um, so I am, I'm now at the age where I'll just introduce myself as a 30-something <laughs> Episcopal priest, <laughs> Um, I've been ordained for about six years to the priesthood, and I've primarily served um, small, medium to small congregations as a solo clergy person. Um, So I'm currently serving a church in Nashville. I've been here for about seven months. Uh, Went to Vanderbilt Divinity School here in Nashville and um, kind of grew up in the Episcopal Church and... Uh, dallied a little bit in the meth- with the Methodists and the Presbyterians, but uh, came back home in college to the Episcopal Church. And uh, I, uh, my my training, my what I thought I wanted to do was to be an opera singer mm-hmm. and uh, went to Rice University in Houston, went through School of Music, got my Bachelor of Music degree, and kind of in that process got really involved in campus ministry, the Episcopal campus ministry at uh, the university and discerned a call to ordained ministry around that time. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of how I ended up in my current position.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, I, we talk about that a lot on the show that it's not, uh, m- most people I find are not in the position they, you know, or the job or the life that they thought they were going to be in and pictured when they were 10 years old. And so it sounds like that's the case here as well. You don't hear the opera singer very often, so that's, uh, you know. <laughs> I just recently had a woman on who, you know, uh, she, she sang in Ukraine on a mission trip when she was a kid and turns out I did the same thing. So it was crazy. The things you find out doing uh, interviews with people. So the opera singer. We aren't going to be able to do that today. And I think we'd probably lose something in translation doing it on the Uh, the podcast. So (laughs) sorry, folks. Yeah. Sorry, (laughs) folks. I did not. uh, I did not prepare Kira for that. So we are not going to be able to have that. uh, The joy of hearing that this morning. But uh, but what we are going to be able to talk about today is is the book that that you wrote. It's called Pro-Life and Christian. Um, and as you, you folks know on this, this episode, we also had Brian Fisher who wrote another pro book on it. pro and a, Christian, sorry. Uh, I did saying. I say pro-life and Christian? Yeah, of course. It's pro-choice and Christian. Um, and, you know, for some reason in my notes, I, uh, I had that too. So, you know, that's, that's the, again, folks, this is not scripted. Um, so I, uh, I make mistakes too. So sorry about that, Kira. The book is called Pro-Choice and Christian. And, you know, I, I want to just hear from you on that. Um, you know, what led you to write the book? Uh, you know, obviously, um, I don't say obviously, I mean, when you were, when you were younger, I imagine you weren't thinking about writing this book, but something, uh, in your, in your life and your ministry surrounding this issue, um, brought you to, uh, write this book and I'm just, I'm just want to hear from you on, on why, what led you to that and what, or how you came to your position, uh, on abortion that we're discussing today.
2: Yeah. So I, um, when people ask me about how I ended up writing this book, I, my short answer is that I didn't choose to write this book. It chose me. Um, and I because like you said, I didn't grow up intending to write this book. I didn't even, if you had told me five years ago or when I was getting ordained, uh, you're going to write this book, I would have probably laughed in your face. Um, would not have believed you. So. One of the great things about having gone to Vanderbilt Divinity School is that a lot of my my colleagues and classmates went into a variety of different ministries, uh, including kind of editors at publishing houses and things like that. So a friend of mine uh, had asked me to start writing for a website called Ministry Matters, which is it's ecumenical in nature, but it's a, a project out of the United Methodist Publishing House. So he uh, contracted with me to write a couple articles a month and at least one of those around some sort of gender issues, women in ministry, kind of broadly defined women's issues. And uh, a few months into that gig, I was sort of thinking about this topic and how I hadn't really seen a more nuanced take on on the abortion debate and having talked to people throughout my ministry and having done some chaplaincy work in hospitals and um, really kind of didn't see a, a more nuanced expression of what I had talked with people about kind of in their, their own viewpoints. And uh, that's, that's the thing, right? you're supposed to write the book that you want to read. <laughs> um, at least that's what some authors and writers are told. So yep. I wrote an article. I wrote an article for Ministry Matters, um, wrestling with both, I mean, just those labels of pro-choice and pro-life. And um, having done kind of the research of my own denominational statement on the issue um, and and doing some research about the history of this issue, um, ended up writing this article. And then several months later, uh, was approached by an editor for Westminster John Knox and they had been looking for an author um, for for a book kind of on this topic and thought that I would be good for it. So it took me a while to say yes um, because it is such a divisive topic and mm-hmm. I didn't know if this is what I wanted to be known for in some ways. Um, but but again, that I kept kind of coming back to that. Uh, what what would I want to read on this and and where where do I fall on this? And um, and ended up saying yes to the project and yes to the book. And and now it feels crazy to kind of hold it in my hands. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. I think that's how a lot of people when they write a book. You know, and uh, and it's always hard too because you can't even on a book that's 100 and something pages, you can't express everything that you feel on it either. I imagine that's the case in here as well. But I do encourage you folks out there, whatever side of this that you're on, um, you'd pick up the book and, and if you're. If you're, a, you know, a pro-life person to, to pick it up. And as I've talked about on the show many times, you know, to read things that you know you're going to disagree with when you pick it up. But also, you know, read it to try to understand at the very least the, uh, the other side of the argument and how somebody else who are, you know, living, breathing human beings who love and care and, and uh, you know, have a lot of the same views as you. Um, think on certain issues that you know are going to be different from yours. And, and that kind of leads to the next question where it says, you know, you have a quote in the book that says, so if we are reading the same Bible, how can there be faithful Christians who are both anti-abortion and pro-abortion rights? That difference lies in how we approach the authority of the Bible and through what lens we read it. Can you flesh out that quote a little bit for our audience?
2: Sure. I mean, I think this quote actually it does not only apply to to abortion or to reproductive rights uh, disagreements, but um, a lot of things that the church is at odds over, whether that's the issue of ordination of women or um, the place of LGBTQ persons in the life of the church. Um, And, and really, I've found it that it is not helpful to get into proof texting battles with people of like, I select my verse, and you select your verse, Mm -hmm. and we just go back and forth, kind of about um, what it what this like, these eight words or these 20 words mean and how we can apply this ancient document to kind of our current moral and ethical, technological issues. Um, but to really look at the whole of the biblical witnesses, which is where I try to come from in the book, kind of looking at the arc of, of justice and the arc of God's mercy and love, um, that's present throughout the biblical witness.
1: Yeah, you know, we'll talk a little bit more later about how we can engage uh, the conversation with each other in a civil way, and and I, I really do want to. We will talk about that a little bit later, which goes to what you just talked about there. Um, but I also want to. But I want to start here with with something that I know we we agree on, and it's something that we've talked a lot about on this show, and I want you to you know be able to share with with our audience, you know the. The idea that uh, i, I believe—I don't say—I say we all agree on. I don't want to put my my beliefs onto people, um, but I'm I'm guessing that most people listening to this show really agree on the idea that idea that we need to care for and love all outside all life outside the womb, including birth mothers and children after their birth, and and you know that's something that you talk a lot about in, a lot about in the book, and I know that uh, it's, it's it's obviously something very important to you, but. I want to hear from you on how you believe we can, we as the church and society can really love the birth mothers with unwanted pregnancies better and further love them when they either keep their children uh, or give them up for adoption.
2: Yeah. So I, um, I want to first clarify that I am definitely coming from a North American, um, social location and kind of, that's the world I'm familiar with and, and would like to speak to. So, um, (laughs) just, just in case uh, that's unclear. Uh, One thing that I've noticed both in the church and kind of society at large is this narrative of pregnancy and particularly unwanted pregnancy as a consequence or a punishment for people having sex. And I, I think one of the things that we can really try to do is to change that narrative um, to viewing life as a gift, no matter how it comes to us. Rather than this this kind of narrative of pregnancy as as a punishment, um there was a story uh, maybe a year or so ago about a young woman who was going attending a Christian school and a Christian high school and um, ended up getting pregnant and uh, was was punished by the school kind of for that and was unable to walk in her high school graduation and some things like that and and it just i get that there are rules and etc but that just breaks my heart that in a situation like that that instead of kind of coming around her and supporting her and loving her and affirming her choice to keep the baby um that there was this instead kind of a punishment mentality. And I mean, that comes from, you know, as a, as a culture, as a society, we have this sort of Puritan streak of discomfort with sex and and women's bodies and um, things like that, that I think are, we're still trying to work through in some ways. So that's kind of like, that's a, the sort of narrative around pregnancy and especially unwanted pregnancies. But I mean, even having, having, now being at the age where a lot of my friends and my colleagues are, are having children, um, just the, it's, it's so hard. <laughs> Even with resources, it is so hard. I've had friends who work for the church who have to fight for their maternal leave, who have to, to fight for um, things like being able to pick up their kids from from daycare and, and things like that. So there are a lot of ways that I mean, I'm thinking, particularly from the church world, mm-hmm. uh, how we can kind of take take that mentality of of this village, this this community, raising you know each and every child. Well, I mean, that's practical things like babysitting or offering you know childcare or offering um, to transportation um, things like that. I know some. I have some single parent friends who are in ministry, and, and they have that support of of people in their congregation that they can call and like, hey, I have to make this emergency pastoral visit at 10 p.m. Can you come over and, and be here for my daughter? Um, so little, there are little glimpses of like what I like to call the little glimpses of the kingdom mm-hmm. in moments like that. And uh, I just wish they were sort of more more widespread.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and that, And that goes to something else you you said in the book that said a consistent pro-life ethic should have as much to say about every death dealing anti-flourishing scenario as it does about abortion but too often those who label themselves pro-life for means of political expediency remain silent on other issues and you know and i i agree with that fully we talk a lot about that on the show about the refugee crisis about the need to love the orphan the sick the poor the vulnerable the widow and the, you know strangers in our midst and and, uh, you know, and I, I agree fully with that, but I think what some people might be, be asking, and, and it's something that I wanted to, to hear your, your response to is, you know, but on the flip side, shouldn't people who adamantly fight for flourishing of the sick, poor, oppressed, orphan, vulnerable also adamantly fight for the flourishing of the vulnerable children in the womb? Just
2: this might, this might surprise you, but I would say yes. Yeah. Um, I think I talk a little bit in the book, uh, about the, the pre-Roe v. Wade pro-life movement uh, and some of where they were coming from uh, in terms of connecting issues of, of being at war in Vietnam and, and issues of poverty and racism and uh, other vulnerable peoples to this issue, this kind of pro-life, um, pro-life issue. And I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for the people, particularly, I find this is mostly in the Roman Catholic Church, that, that really do take this consistent ethic of life, kind of a whole life ethic to heart. I mean, I, I think I recently came across, um, forget which state it was in, but the Roman Catholic bishops in that state that were petitioning the governor um, to, to not use the death penalty in a case. So I I would say yes to that question. Mm-hmm. And the kind of flip side is like, but what does that look like? Right. You know, does that look like um, does that look like a legal remedy in terms of making abortion illegal or placing further restrictions or kind of hurdles to clear for women who are seeking abortion? Or to me, I would say it looks like making sure women have access to excellent perinatal care and good nutrition and and parenting classes and the support that they would need uh, in order to say, yes, I can. I can carry this baby, I can choose life in this situation
1: so with that, you know, I think that the the next question I'd have there is and i I totally uh, hear you and I, and I think that probably will surprise a lot of people that you you said yes to that question, given the title of the book, which I think talks about the nuanced approach that you talked about at the very beginning of this this conversation after reading the book, I saw a lot of. Absolutely, a nuance in your position and something that I think would surprise a lot of people hearing from someone who wrote a book called Pro-Choice and Christian, right? Um, But that does beg the question, you know, so how if we're protecting the vulnerable child in the womb, um, you know, from the perspective of a lot of people who would say it's murder, who would say um, that uh, it's, you know, it's actually killing that life. So how is that consistent with what you just talked about as far as, you know, protecting the vulnerable? Um, in your, in your opinion or in your position, I guess.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot to kind of unpack in that question.
1: That's very loaded. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, that's, that's why it's easier to be on this side of the, 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 the uh, question asking. <laughs>
2: um, there's a lot to unpack in that question in part, because I think one of the fundamental disagreements is this sort of, is this question of like, when, when does life begin? When does a when does personhood begin? Um, you know, that are kind of wrapped up in this issue? And i, you know those those are kind of beyond my pay grade in a lot of ways. And I don't think I don't think anyone can definitively answer those questions about, is this uh, when is this murder? When is it murder? Um, you know, there's a lot of, of nuance and difficulty in, in those questions for sure.
1: And maybe I can just put it into the, the context. Same question I, I asked, similar question that I asked Brian Fisher in, in, in his interview. That I was talking about the, the, what, uh, what clearly appears to me to be illogical and legal inconsistencies in the laws in our country. So they punish people for, you know, hurting or killing the life of a child in the womb. You know, whether it's involuntary manslaughter in a car accident, you hear the proverbial uh, woman driving to the abortion clinic to get a an abortion, and she gets hit, blindsided in the intersection, and kills her and the baby, and the person is guilty of involuntary manslaughter of two counts of involuntary manslaughter for both the baby in the womb and the mother, but if that mother took the same... Uh, you know, child, whether it's fetus, embryo, whatever, in the womb to the abortion clinic and got the abortion, the child would not be, I mean, it would not be a crime. So how is that consistent? And I guess that if, you know, if you're saying that both of those are, and in this, again, maybe something that you, that you pass on because it's, is something that, um, is, is very difficult to, to discuss, but I just wanted to hear your position on that. If you have one, um, cause I know that, you know, Brian spoke to it. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak to that as well.
2: Yeah. So I'm definitely not a legal scholar. Sure. Um, but I, I also think that these laws kind of point to the difficulties involved in these issues, um, of what is, what is, uh, you know, there's some intentionality around, you know, a a wanted pregnancy versus one that isn't. And, you know, we talk about ethics as the study of competing goods. And, which is, this is just a prime ethical issue because there's the competing good of sort of a woman's personhood, a woman's right to um, bodily integrity, and then the issue of, you know, this potential life. And, And all of that to say, most people that are choosing abortion or are in a position where they're weighing these choices. There are there are almost no good options,
1: mm.
2: and um, that's that's the place I want to start from in terms of offering grace and um, care and love um, and and a real affirmation of of a choice that ideally is a choice made with um, the support and, and love of community that, that can be made.
1: Yeah. And I think that this, this absolutely brings, you know, into focus the, the difficulty of this, of this issue, which is why I think it's so hard to talk about with people. Um, when you're, when you're on opposite sides of the, um, I say opposite, I mean, I think that there's a whole lot more than we agree on than what we disagree on in this, and so i think that that's something that's becoming more and more clear the more i talk with people about this very difficult issue um but i think there will also be some some areas that some people absolutely disagree on on this uh topic and so i think that that's that's uh you know very clear when you actually sit down and have these conversations with people which is unfortunately rare and i say unfortunately because i think it would it would help people to process through these if you did talk to people that you disagree with on this issue and so if nothing else Happens from this conversation. I hope it encourages people to discuss this with other people in ways that aren't yelling at each other and just completely fighting over it. Because I think that, as with most issues, we probably agree a whole lot more than we disagree on things. Um, You know. And on that note, you know, abortion has uh, really often been pigeonholed uh, solely uh, as a women's issue and highly politicized. Um, What do you What do you think of that? Do you believe it's a It's both a men's and women's issue uh, or agree that women should be the ones leading the conversation on this issue. And uh, if you you do believe the role of men should be uh, or the role men should be having in this conversation is one that is is, uh, a part of it, how can we empower both men and women to uh, achieve this ideal?
2: So I'll admit that my initial reaction to this question is not really that positive. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Just due to kind of history and who gets to make decisions and this sort of just long, long history of, of women being considered less than or having decisions made for them. Sure. And so I think first and foremost, we do need to acknowledge that we are talking about women's bodies. Women are gonna be the ones that are pregnant. Women are the ones taking, taking a very real bodily risk. Um, women are the ones who, at least in our society right now, suffer the consequences in terms of lack of professional advancement and things like the wage gap. Um, so I wanna start from there. But this is also a people issue. And But I, I also wanna ask, like, where are men when we talk about maternal mortality? and things like that, you know, those are also issues that tend to be pigeonholed as women's issues that mm-hmm. men don't seem to want to step up to the plate as willingly. Um, so, but I do think, you know, in terms of involving both genders, this is, this is, a, this is an issue of moral and ethical formation uh, around, around viewing life as a gift. And, and ideally, again, this is a discussion that happens in conversation and in relationship and um, honestly, I would be interested in hearing more men talking to other men about this and their, uh, their experiences, their, you know, what has kind of happened, instead of kind of putting the onus on women to, um, to educate or to um, defend their choices, things like that. Um, but I, I am interested in definitely in in hearing men's stories around this issue. Not, not their, uh, again, not the kind of defensive, like, well, this is what I believe and this is where I stand, but, but really like their stories. Have, have they, do they know if they had a partner who, who's had an abortion? Uh, you know, questions like that. What was the effect on them if they did know, if they didn't know? Um, you know, and the fact that men cannot know also, kind of plays into this question of, okay, well, how, you know, that that's an issue. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that there's, again, like you said, it, it it's it's nuanced. It's difficult because it is so emotional, and obviously, if you know, if you you know, if a woman does have an abortion, it's not just a you know a mental exercise. It it's a real life experience that has repercussions on, on, in many ways. And, you know, so that's something that, um, but like you said, I mean, obviously men are involved in the process in some way. Um, <laughs> but so, um, but I think you're right that, you know, men, I talk about this very often on the show. I talk about it in the class I teach that if we could, actually disciple uh, males to be real men godly men we'd alleviate a lot of these issues in our world today and i and i think that men are missing from real conversations from real lives um that do cause i believe a lot of the issues we have and so i i fully agree with you there um on on one side of it in that i really believe that we we as men and i i am one of the men obviously so um, need to be more present in more of the difficult conversations and more of the difficult issues in life. Um, that being said, I don't necessarily, you know, but that doesn't give, you know, it doesn't give. I think a pass for women on the flip side to say, "Well, this isn't your business because you weren't here for some other conversations." Um, I get the, I get that, I get that argument, but I think that it, it's really they're they're separate issues, right? I mean, I think that if. Just because somebody isn't there in one setting and situation doesn't mean that it's not appropriate for them to be in the other situation. It just means they should have been there in both. Does that make sense? I mean, do you do you hear what I'm saying there? Yeah. Do you agree? Oh, no.
2: And I, I totally agree. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, they yeah. should be there in both. Yeah. Because, I mean, if, you know, if I'm in a partnership and you know or you look at a woman and she is married and she has three kids and they're in a very stressful economic situation and she ends up with an unwanted pregnancy and she ends up carrying the baby and she dies you know in the process of giving birth like that's a maternal mortality issue that affects her husband that affects her kids who may be you know girls boys whatever so it's it's not these are not issues that are um distinctly you know have to be one thing Um, But yeah, no, I'm not saying I'm I'm certainly not saying that men can't talk about reproductive rights issues because they don't talk about maternal mortality. But that it's all kind of tied together. And and I I wish there were more, um, more were more men who, um, you know, were active in in these conversations.
1: Absolutely. I think it's like so many other issues. If we stopped, you know, yelling at each other and telling each other why you're absolutely wrong with everything, we could actually have a lot more productive conversations and, you know, seek to be understood before you, you know, seek to make everyone understand what you're thinking. Um, I mean, seek to understand others before you seek to be understood, I guess is what I meant to say there. But, uh, yeah. And you talk in your book and I think it's, it's very related to this and I I want you to kind of flesh it out a little bit for our, for our audience. the idea you talk about in your book about the pro-life feminist agenda. Um, what is that and why, and you say, you know, you think if men understood that they'd really think differently about some of this and is it, it, a it's, ba- it's a, you kind of touched on it and alluded to it earlier, but can you just share with what that is and, and why you think it might change some men's thinking on it?
2: Um, sure. I just want to make sure I'm getting straight what you want me to talk about. Kind of the idea of, um, again, this kind of support of families and, and yeah. all
1: of that. Yeah. Just the idea that, you know, to encourage women, um, in, in all facets of, of life that would, also encourage life in the con- in the context of this abortion debate.
2: Right. So, yeah, I mean, like we were kind of talking just now, it's a lot of these issues that, I mean, I've been involved in as kind of a white feminist, whether that's career opportunities or the wage gap, pay gap, um, issues of maternal mortality. These are spaces that are highly, um, highly dominated by white women. And, and it would be great, you know, to... To have men, more men kind of stand up and say like, yes, it would be great to um, for us to have some kind of, you know, government standards around family leave, not just maternal leave, but paternal leave mm-hmm. and, and family leave, that caring for families is not just the task of women. Um, and and what that looks like in terms of uh, being able to provide for one's family and, uh, with, a, with a reasonable salary and things like that. So um, again, to kind of have access to two conditions that, that promote human flourishing uh, for women, you know, the sort of rising tide, the tide, you know, whatever, rising tide lifts all boats <laughs> right. um, kind of idea of if we lift up kind of the most marginalized people, um, if we center the marginalized voices of women of color and indigenous women, and we talk to them about what their struggles are um, how how then that can kind of create better communities for all of us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is, it's something that I believe, it kind of goes back to what I talked about before is, you know, to, it, I believe it's a lot of discipleship issues on both sides, both the disciple men to be, you know, males to be men who are, who are looking to, out for those rights that you're talking about. And also women to, because there you know, there are a lot of very strong women who do understand their, their unique gifts and talents that are amazing. But there's a lot of women who also don't understand that. And particularly when you're talking about developing world, particularly when you're talking about places around the world where women see themselves as just baby factories or see themselves as lesser than in some way, whatever that is. And that's just not truth. That's not the truth of the gospel. Um, you can believe in gender roles and still believe that everyone has the um, unique gifts and talents that they can do amazing things for the kingdom. Um, so I think that there are there are ways that we can stick to whatever our, you know, biblical view, you know, whatever our worldview is. There's ways we can um, really understand the value uh, of women and of men and on both sides to, to see what, what are our roles uh, in this world. And so. Um, Well, we might not agree on everything related to those topics. I think that um, I I totally, when I was reading the book, it's obviously, I mean, these are issues that are real issues that there has been oppression throughout history of women. There has been oppression of different races. There has been oppression of different, um, all kinds of different people, groups, whatever it may be. And none of that's right. You know, it's not right to do that. And that's what, you know, God protects against throughout scripture. So, um, with that, I want to kind of move on to the last topic before the couple of questions I ask everybody on the show. And the first is, you know, or the, this question is that I want to talk to you about is, is you know, we've talked a little bit today. I mean, this goes so fast every time I have these conversations. <laughs> um, I can't believe we're all this far in. But, you know, I really want to ask you, given the, I mean, we obviously had a conversation today that I hope was civil. I hope you felt the same way on the other side. Um, why do you believe that... Uh, you know, abortion Abortion has become, and I think we talked a little bit about it today, but such a taboo topic um, that's so difficult to talk about in our churches. And how can we better engage the topic uh, with each other in our churches and in society and hopefully have more civil dialogue on this issue that we have such strong disagreement on in so many cases?
2: Right. So I think, um, I mean, unfortunately, there has been just kind of a gradually widening gap on all kinds of political topics. Um, particularly, I, I mean, I've witnessed it in my churches over the last four years, three, four years, five years. Um, and and at the same time, this topic of, of abortion and, and reproductive rights and reproductive justice is incredibly personal. And it also, as we've talked about, involves so many different issues we're talking issues of life and death and sex and money and gender roles and child rearing. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a lot. Yep. That's a lot. And that's a lot of things that people have a lot of varying opinions on. Um, and I mean, if you were raised kind of like I did, you know, you don't talk about religion (laughs) or politics at the dinner table. (laughs) Yep. Um, And and so first and foremost, I mean, to have conversations around this issue or around any kind of difficult issue, first and foremost, you know, we need to be in some sort of relationship um, that it isn't just kind of shots across the the bow at at people. Um, And and so I think in some ways, churches or other kinds of communities are are in some ways best set up to to have these difficult conversations and have civil dialogue. but, you know, it's scary. It's scary and it requires bravery and it requires uh, a willingness to to listen and also to to share one's own story and one's own truth. Um, and and that's that's the best way I've found to kind of have civil dialogue with people is is just to tell Tell your story, to tell, you know, if it's around a specific topic, to tell your story around that topic. And I know that's something I've witnessed um, both locally in my churches and kind of on a more denominational or diocesan kind of broader level uh, around all kinds of difficult issues. Uh, I mean, namely, the big one that we kind of have where I mean we have task forces and stuff on all kinds of issues, but looking at issues of race, racism, um, white supremacy, and, and issues of, of sexuality. And so, so having those, having those conversations where, where we tell our story and, and build trust and build relationship, um, is kind of the most, I think the most kingdom building thing that we can do, even if we disagree.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's absolutely true. As far as relationship, we talk, I, I talk to people about that all the time, that it's hard to have a conversation on anything that's difficult if you don't have the relationship and you don't, earn the conversation really with that person that they know you care and you know, they care. Um, and those, those contexts, I think they they are, um, places that hopefully you can have these conversations in real ways and know at the end of it, you're going to love each other. Um, and that, that's where I think you can learn so much as long as you're ready to listen and learn. And something I've learned a lot about it's what's so great about this podcast for me is I'm listening a lot more than I <laughs> often used to in <laughs> conversations. So, um, so, yeah, so I, well, I appreciate all this. And if people want to connect with you to hopefully have a civil conversation, I, I emphasize that out there. If you don't want to have civil conversation, please don't engage on this. But if, how can people get in touch with you to talk about um, this issue on, on either side of it with you to, to get more information?
2: Sure. Um, I've got a public Facebook page, uh, the Reverend Kira um, that people can find me on. I'm also pretty active on Twitter okay. at at K-Maze, Kmay's, K M A Y S. So yeah, cool. that's probably the best way.
1: Well, sounds great. Yeah, those are those are two great ways to do it, so you can learn more about Kira and what she's doing. Uh, so the last couple questions we have for everyone. Uh, the first is, uh, what have you read, watched, or listened to recently that has impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children with more excellence? Uh,
2: so this is going to sound kind of silly and a, probably a little bit surprising that I'm a kind of person that's full of surprises. so so i got the outline for this uh for this interview and i was kind of thinking about this question and lately i've been re-watching sex in the city (laughs) (laughs) it's been it's like the 20th anniversary of the debut of the show and i haven't watched it since i was in college and so i kind of wanted to see how i related to it now um, now that i'm the age that these women are in this show and so in season four, uh, one of the characters Miranda ends up with an unexpected, unwanted pregnancy, and she's a high-powered lawyer. For those of you who are not familiar with the show, um, and really thinks long and hard, and and you know, of course, TV shows dra- dramatize this issue a bunch. Sure. Uh, so she she goes to the abortion clinic and um, and ends up deciding to to keep the child, and the kind of the end of the episode uh shows her with her three friends surrounding her and and them kind of committing to one another to to care for Miranda and for her baby and I just thought yes that's <laughs> um that it was just a beautiful moment
1: Yeah, yeah I can definitely say that was the first time that was recommended on the show so that was not <laughs> what i was expecting but hey you know what i i agree that is a that's a great picture of of uh kind of what we're talking about here so it's it's definitely not the the norm um that you'd see on that on you wouldn't it's not what you'd expect at least not when you started that it's not what i expected to hear at the end of that story <laughs> so that was that was very good but i think that that's kind of what we're talking about is to have some real clever creative dialogue in some of this uh too helps to to get people to think a little differently so uh, the last question: What person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence?
2: Uh, so in in my life and in my ministry, I've um, run into to families, and I particularly had a family at my first church uh, who had adopted three kids out of the foster system, and just getting to know that family and their story um, really really impacted. Um, impacted me and, and my thinking. And I've also had some uh, colleagues lately who are single women who have gotten involved in the foster care system. Um, and, and that as a, as a calling and as a ministry, in addition to the ministry they're already engaged in, in their churches and communities, um, has been really moving and uh, inspiring to me.
1: Well, Kara, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your heart um, with our audience. And uh, I look forward to continuing our conversation really soon. Well, thanks again to Kira Schlesinger. You know, that's not easy to do. Coming on the show, before we uh, did that interview, I was able to talk with her, get to know her a little bit. And, you know, I, I let her know that I disagree with her. I didn't want that to come as a surprise. But uh, I thank her for coming on, even knowing that, and, and really doing it in a way that, you know, I really hope and pray that it came across as what I hoped it would be. And that's that's just really a good civil conversation. Um, asking questions. I really wanted to understand where she's coming from and I wanted to help you guys understand that as well. So if you disagree with her, hopefully you come a little closer to understanding the position she has. And you know what? If that was something that really piqued your interest and something that helped you um, understand either position or just helped really you understand your position a little bit better even, uh, next week I encourage you to come back to the podcast and listen to and really engage, hopefully, the conversation that Kira and Brian have together. I was able to just kind of facilitate that, really be a fly on the wall, the conversation with them. I added a couple things here and there, but for the most part, it's them just having a conversation on these really, really tough issues that they sp- have spent a lot of their time, a lot of their life, um, their lives, to uh, really try to understand and to help others understand as well. So, you know, I really do hope that this conversation is something that It helps you to maybe have this conversation with people that you know and that you love and that you really want to understand people better and to not have this be a taboo topic that we never discuss because it really is. I do believe it's one of the most important conversations we need to be having, one of the most important topics of our generation and of our lives that we really need to engage more. Um, it might be a little uncomfortable at first, and it might really be uncomfortable all the time. But you know what? Just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean we don't engage it. And that's something I hope we can help with on this podcast is to really have these conversations. And hopefully, they will be healthy conversations that you can have while you're out there. And I really do hope and pray. as I As I say every week, I really mean it. I hope and pray you take all that you're learning on this show, all that you're learning as you're just out there, doing your different things that you're doing, and you take all those things and you really pray for wisdom to know how you can use all of them to help you love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot.
0: Have a great week.